This is Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Lengel, and on today's show, abortion is on the ballot in the midterms, even where it's not on the ballot. Today, design mom blogger Gabrielle Blair will join us. She'll definitely make the case for moving the abortion debate away from controlling and legislating women's bodies and instead directing the focus on men's lack of accountability in preventing unwanted pregnancies. I will advise you now and again just before that interview, it does contain some terminology and frank discussion of reproductive issues that may not be the personal choices for some listeners. A few weeks ago, I asked our public health reporter, Rosemary Westwood, if she had seen any push toward male accountability in the abortion issue, and Rosemary joins us now. Rosemary, thanks again for coming. My pleasure to be here. So what's the latest? So the state's near-total abortion ban has been in effect since August 1st. It was it was enforced on and off um, after the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade on June 24th, and then it has been fully enforced since August 1st. That means that there are only three ways people are able to legally access abortions right now. One is if you have an ectopic pregnancy, and that's where the embryo is implanted outside of the uterus, and that can be deadly. So those are allowed. Um, it's also allowed to get an abortion to save the pregnant person's life or if there's a significant risk to that person's life. Um, and that's a judgment that physicians have to make. Uh, and then there's also an exception for pregnancies that are considered medically futile. And that means that these are, these are fetuses that are deemed incompatible with life. They are terminally ill and would die upon birth. Um, and that there's a list, a specific list that the health department has published, which was required by the law. It includes spe- a specific number, 24 of uh, named uh, diagnoses that allow for abortions. And then there's one sort of catch-all that says um, a genetic anomaly um, that two physicians, you know, say is incompatible with life. That person can also receive an abortion. I mean, th- those are very narrow restrictions. We're talking about a sliver of the number of people who would have been accessing abortions when they were legal. Those are the words. Those are the laws. How about the lives? Right. So we know people are traveling out of state to get abortions. Um, those are people who can afford to do that. It's you're talking hundreds of miles, you know, plane tickets, that type of thing. Um, People might be going to Florida, to Illinois. We know that Nancy Davis went to New York. She's the woman people might have heard of who was carrying a fetus that did not have a fully developed brain or skull. That, That was a condition that, you know, was deemed medically futile, but wasn't specifically on this health department list. And the physicians at Women's Hospital who were treating her were afraid of running afoul of that and other Uh, anti-abortion laws that have been on the books for many years. So Nancy Davis went to New York. So so people who can are getting out of state for these procedures. We know some people will be finding their way to abortion pills. Those are accessible online. There's also um, informal networks of activists who are distributing those pills illegally throughout the country. Uh, Those pills have been shown to be safe uh, to take at home through through a series of studies, but they are illegal. Uh, and so that puts you know someone taking those pills at legal risk and someone helping that person take those pills at legal risk as well. And then we know from physicians at major hospitals in the state that this law is having an impact on other pregnancy care. So people 
who are miscarrying or having trouble getting care in emergency departments. Um, there was a story recently um, of a, a woman who was carrying twins that passed, that, that died at 16 weeks, and, and her attending physician was afraid to provide a termination, even in that case, and wanted reassurances from um, higher-ups in the hospital that that was legal. So there's a lot of confusion, and, and physicians are saying that's delaying care, which is a problem, especially in a state like Louisiana, which has extremely high maternal mortality and infant mortality rates. We are not um, at the leading edge of maternal health care uh, in the country, and Black women in particular and Black babies in particular are more likely to, to be impacted. So um, what we're hearing from physicians is that they need more guidance, and without that guidance, they are afraid of unintended consequences. So what about the anti-abortion movement? What's their status? So Ben Clapper, who leads Louisiana Right to Life, and that's the state's most powerful anti-abortion group, the, the group that also helped write this law, he told reporters this week that he thinks the law is clear, uh, that he is obviously 100% behind it. His group has been celebrating um, the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the enforcement of this law. Uh, he also seemed to criticize doctors who are raising concerns about the law, you know, seem to be suggesting that maybe those weren't um, well meant or, or that those were coming from, from physicians who might have abortion rights agendas, essentially. And in fact, some of those criticisms came from leading physicians in the state during a health department meeting in September about infant mortality. Um, Louisiana Right to Life, though, has one concern with the law as it stands, which is that the medically futile exception is not one that the group supports. Um, it was one added to the law that Louisiana Right to Life didn't didn't want to be there. It wasn't part of the original language. And so there, Ben Clapper did say that that he would be open to trying to remove that exception to the law in the next legislative session, which would mean that People carrying fetuses too sick to live or who might suffer upon birth would be forced to carry those pregnancies to term. So male accountability, have you heard anything in all of the things that are surfacing during this issue on male accountability? Very little, I will say, very little. I have uh, had anecdotal stories you know, told to me that more men are seeking vasectomies in the wake of Dobbs in Louisiana, you know, understanding that they have a responsibility not to help create children that they might not want or don't think that they can care for. Um, I, I, there are groups that try to encourage men to play a bigger role in the pro-life movement in Louisiana and the anti-abortion movement in Louisiana. And, and, you know, I think there's a general understanding that, you know, women and people with women's reproductive organs don't create babies on their own, but the primary impact thus far of the ban has been on women and women's health care and, and women's, you know, financial ability, I think, as well. So we know nationally there were 10,000 fewer abortions in the two months since the, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe, and about 1,300 of those, a little less than 1,300 of those came from Louisiana. We don't know exactly what happened in all of those cases, but we can assume that many of those people stayed pregnant against their will. Um, so, And we know that women, you know, earn lower wages than men, especially women of color. As I said, we know Black women have high rates of maternal mortality and Black babies have high rates of infant mortality in Louisiana. We know Black kids are more likely to be taken into foster care. 
We know, you know, that women have often made decisions. I, I know this through research and also my own reporting to have an abortion based on financial need. These are people typically who are often already parents and they are trying to best take care of the children they already have. So all this to say, we know this is and will impact women far more than men because we're living in a society where children are seen primarily as women's responsibility and state laws like no paid family leave or you know some of the lowest employment insurance um, in the country, those all those only entrench that inequity that that this law will will likely grow. Rosemary, the spectrum on this issue just seems to continue to grow every day. So we will be hearing more from you. I'm certain. Thanks for taking some time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was public health reporter Rosemary Westwood. You're listening to Louisiana Considered on WWNO and WRKF. I'm Carl Lengel. I'm again going to advise you the following conversation does contain some terminology and frank discussion of reproductive issues that may not be the personal choices of some listeners. Gabrielle Stanley Blair is the creator of Design Mom, an award-winning blog where she's been sharing parenting, design, cooking, and do-it-yourself tips for the past 16 years. She's an American Mormon, mother of six children, currently living in France. In 2018, reacting to the tone deafness of male stances on abortion, she began to rethink about the argument as an argument of male reproduction responsibility. Her new book, Ejaculate Responsibly is a series of 28 brief arguments. She makes the case for moving the debate away from controlling and legislating women's, women's bodies and instead directing the focus on men's lack of accountability in preventing unwanted pregnancies. She joins us now. Gabby, thanks so much for taking some time with us today. I am so glad to be here. Thank you. There are a lot of topics you could talk about, but today <laughs> we're going to talk about this book. And um, specifically, actually, this began, it seems like, about four years ago in kind of a Twitter storm. Tell us a little bit about how that evolved. Yeah, you bet. So you're exactly right. It was two, uh, four years ago in 2018, and it was on Twitter. And what was happening is Brett Kavanaugh was being vetted for the Supreme Court. And... Um, a lot of men were talking about abortion. They're talking about women's bodies and reproductive health. And it was starting to make me really angry because it was so clear to me, they didn't actually care about this topic. They didn't understand there were real people involved that this was going to affect you know, actual people. And it was so clearly a dog whistle or just like, if I say these words, then I'll get these votes. And, and, and really no more thought than that. And it, it made me very angry because this is a very important topic, and it's um, it really does affect so many lives, as we've seen since Roe v. Wade was overturned. Already, so many people affected, not just being able to not get abortions, but having wanted pregnancies, not being able to get the proper care for wanted pregnancies. It's it's been really, really disheartening. But anyway, um, I I had had these thoughts kind of mulling in my head. I'd written some out, but I hadn't shared them anywhere. And finally, um, when that was happening, I got angry enough to say, okay, this isn't something I've shared before, but I think it's time. And I put it out there, not knowing what kind of response it would get. Um, and it was these, and the basic premise is that men cause all unwanted pregnancies and that they really need to be a part of the abortion conversation and that we just have not included them and have really kind of let them off the hook in all these discussions. Um, it's a controversial topic. I mean, the, the ideas I'm presenting are stressful to some people, um, and really um, embraced by others. 
Um, but overall, the reaction was uh, really terrific, just amazing. Um, so many really grateful comments from women who have, uh, you know, maybe they've been married for quite a while, they're done having kids, maybe they're using an IUD or some other kind of birth control, and they really don't like the side effects. They're having a lot of bleeding or having other, um, uh, other issues. And um, it's just never occurred to them that men could take on some of the burden of pregnancy prevention work, that it's just assumed that women will do that. It's assumed by women, it's assumed by men, that women will do the work of pregnancy prevention. And I wanted to present ideas to counter that, to, to point it out, to point out the imbalance and talk about ways we could um, make it more balanced. And I wrote a book and I called it Ejaculate Responsibly. There are four kind of essential arguments that you present, uh, according to the book. Let's start with the first one, the basics of fertility. Men are 50 times more fertile than women. Yeah, I know we haven't really thought about that, but it's true. So what happens is a woman's egg is fertile for 12 to 24 hours each month from puberty until menopause. Um, men, their sperm, assuming they're a fertile man, their sperm is fertile from puberty until death. And if you compare those days, it's exactly what you just said. Men are 50 times more fertile than women. And it's so bizarre because we have concentrated all our efforts on this 12 to 24 hours, which seems like, I mean, I get that. You're like, hey, that's just this short little period. If we could just concentrate on that and master that, that'd be great. But there's an issue, a pretty big one. Those 12 to 24 hours are unpredictable, even for women who have very consistent cycles and you know every four weeks they have ovulation it doesn't actually work like that there's a there's a 10-day period where ovulation can happen and so trying to put all these efforts on this very unpredictable involuntary thing women don't get to choose to ovulate that day or to say i'm going to skip it today there's it's absolutely involuntary and to, and to focus all our efforts on that is so bizarre because we completely ignore men's fertility, which is, it couldn't be more predictable, right? Like it's always, always there. It's ever present. It's always consistent. And ejaculation, as we're, you know, comparing ovulation and ejaculation, ejaculation is always voluntary. Men get to decide if they're going to release sperm that day or not. Like that's their decision. And, or, and maybe they're doing that many times a day, but that's, they get to decide if they're going to release sperm or not versus women who don't ever get to decide if they're releasing their egg or not. That's, it's, it's voluntary versus involuntary. And that's just the biology. And there's not a lot to argue with there. Like <laughs> those are just, those are just biological facts, right? This is, this is simple accountability. I, I, there, there's no moral, there's no religious, there's no social. It, it is just <laughs> accountability. It's that simple. Right. It's math. One plus one <laughs> is this. Let's yes. go to the, the second one. 90% of birth control products are marketed toward women. It's an $8 billion birth control industry. And I don't know if people understand how big it is, but 90% of those products are purchased by women for women. It's, it's uh, again, we, we, we've only considered women. And I, I'm, you know, that's not exactly right. There have been some experiments with birth control for men where they've toyed with that a little bit and done a little research, but we're not putting even a 10th of the energy towards options for men for birth control as the energy we put towards women's birth control. And there are new products for women's bodies coming out all the time. They're typically um, hormonal based. This is just what it is. And, and there'll be new versions or updates to the, to the pill, but it's, 
it's all basically the same thing. And then we have men's birth control. And it, when I started uh, writing that Twitter thread and then turned it into a book, I really started noticing this comparison between the birth control options because as a woman, um, I have six kids. So you would think I wouldn't know anything about birth control, <laughs> like that it would be some <laughs> mysterious thing to me, but I've actually tried pretty much every option out there. And because I found them all, I had, I had issues with every single one. So I was thinking about that and thinking it's just was really challenging to take birth control and to even keep a birth control prescription current. You know, it's a, it's a doctor's appointment. It's does my insurance cover this? It's an invasive exam. It's figuring out the side effects and coming back to the doctor again. And do I need to take off work for this or get childcare for this? And even on days where I'm not having sex, I'm still absorbing these hormones. And again, I'm only fertile for 12 to 24 hours. So it's this, this really difficult thing. And then I started seeing the comparison to male birth control. And specifically, I was thinking about condoms and they really are the polar opposite. They're available every hour. They're, they're vending machines. They're available anytime. They're really affordable. In fact, every state has free condom programs. You don't need to wear them if you're not having sex. You don't need to wear them even right until you have sex. Oh, there's, but... there's no side effects, etc. Gabby, it's just such a problem to deal with that. I mean, <laughs> I know you've got all of the things that you talked about, the complications there, but that's the third thing that you mentioned. There's just a stigma with, well, I don't really want to do that. Right. And we've just decided to accept that. I mean, I was barely taught, I grew up very religious. I was barely even taught about sex. And yet somehow I knew that men don't like condoms, even as a teenager. It's like in our, it's in our movies, it's in our books. It's like part of this culture. And it's been interesting to me. I, I certainly went into these conversations with that assumption that men just don't like condoms. And it's been so interesting. I've heard from thousands and thousands of men at this point. And so many of them have said, Sure, I hated condoms. I didn't know how to use them. I hadn't been taught. I didn't know how to get the right size. I didn't know I had an allergy to, to certain materials. I didn't know how to lubricate properly. Like it's a skill. In the same way that women have to learn how to use their birth control, men should be taught about how to use condoms. And the men that have figured it out, have, that have taken the time to practice and figured this out, have assured me that you can have delightful sex with a condom, that that's not really the issue here, that it's really more about the stigma and that these stories we've told ourselves that somehow it's an accomplishment for men if they can talk out, talk a woman out of having you know sex with a condom. I, I don't totally understand it. There's a little math thing for the final point. 1224, the period that you talked about that you basically are fertile yeah. versus... 24 7 which is what right. men are fertile all the time there's if a man is fertile he is fertile period so period. that's the fourth kind of how do we get over that i suppose well i mean so much of this is just exactly what we're doing right here we have to spell these th these issues out we have to talk about it and i think of it like i, I think back to other social movements that have happened in our time and i'm thinking of practical things like when I was 16, they were just introducing seatbelt laws and I was getting my driver's license for the first time. And I remember very clearly thinking I would never wear a seatbelt. I didn't grow up with seatbelts. Seatbelts sounded like dumb, like, oh, no cool person would do that. But I lived in a small town and one, one year during spring break, some cool kids from the big city came to town and were, you know, wanted to go drive around town and they would not start the car until we all had our seatbelts on. These were my peers. And I immediately had a, a switch where I thought, oh, I get it. We're wearing seatbelts. This is the new thing. 
And no one would ever ask me as I go out to drive, run, run errands, are you planning to wear a seatbelt today? You know, that no one would ever ask me that. That's just an assumption. And I think we can get there with condoms where we can say, no one's going to ask you, are you planning to ejaculate responsibly? You know, do you have a vasectomy? Do you, are you going to be using condoms? No one would have to ask that because it's just an assumption. It's just like, well, of course I'm going to ejaculate responsibly. Why would I ever put my partner at risk? Why would I ever do anything so um, unthoughtful and, and, and dangerous really? And I think we can get there. And it really is a matter of conversations and education. Do you ever get the sense in kind of as you've discussed this with other people that this weakens the women's right argument? There, there's an argument that, uh, oh, well, you, you know, it is about women's rights in this particular case. And by dragging the male into it, we're shifting some of the attention and the responsibility. Do you ever get that kind of pushback? Uh, oh, I do. I do. There are certainly people that are saying, hey, if you're focusing on men, you're, you're, um, you're making the women helpless here, making them victims. And I just don't see it that way at all. What I see that I'm doing is asking men to be held accountable and like holding men accountable for their actions in no way makes women victims. It's not a commentary on victim uh, on women at all. It's a commentary on men. And I feel like I'm, I'm being very, I feel like respectful of men. I'm saying, Hey, here's this thing you can do. And I, know that you're capable of doing it because I know so many good men that do ejaculate responsibly. And I know you're capable of doing this thing. If you're assuming that men aren't capable of doing this or that this is a hard thing or this is a big ask for men, I think you're disrespecting men more than I am. I'm saying, hey, Ben, this is an easy thing. You can do this. You haven't been taught this. Women haven't been taught this, but this is very doable. And the idea that you should ejaculate responsibly is not a threatening thing and it doesn't make women victims. It doesn't make, it doesn't make men the enemies. There's not like a blame thing here. It's not like I'm saying, like if, if I say the moon causes the tides, I'm not blaming the moon. I'm just saying, this is what it is. If I say sperm cause pregnancy, I'm not blaming, there's no moral you know, commentary there. I'm not blaming the sperm. I'm just saying, this is what happens. And if we point that out um, again, it's not victimizing women. It's just saying, Hey men, have you considered this? Maybe step up and, Think about how you can take responsibility for your own body, your own bodily fluids. Do you feel like it's starting to shift the needle a little bit? Uh, in I do. I really do. Um, well, this is what I've seen. It's, it, I, I've put these ideas out there now, again, for four years, um, much more clarified in this new book, which I'm very excited about. But um, I have seen at protests, at um, just in conversations, memes on the internet, conversations about men and vasectomies, about about men's fertility, things like that. And I know that these ideas are getting out there and that, um, and I also have heard from so many men who have really embraced these ideas. And, and, and I know they're maybe thinking back on their past sexual experiences, wondering, was I always ejaculating responsibly? Should I have done something differently? But, but more importantly, I know they're going into their next sexual experience ready to, to ejaculate responsibly. And that's all I'm asking. Like, l- let's move forward teaching people to ejaculate responsibly. Gabby, this has been a pleasure. I, uh, I look forward to hearing more as this develops. Well, I love your questions. This was a super fun conversation. Thank you. Gabrielle Stanley Blair is the creator of the blog Design Mom and author of Ejaculate Responsibly, which makes a case for male accountability in the abortion issue. This is Louisiana Considered. It's called the New Orleans Tango I said as she looked around 
We don't need any dance floor. All we need is the ground. This has been Louisiana Considered. I'm Carl Langle. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber. Our digital editor is Caitlin Dumholtz. Engineers are Garrett Pittman, Aubrey Procell, and Thomas Walsh. Louisiana Considered airs Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support is provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience with additional support from Southern Strategy Group. As we listen.